She simply wrestles with grapes all day and murders people when no one's looking. But we didn't know that, you know. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome or welcome back to Soaplore, the official gathering place for newbies, novices, and OD diehard fans of the golden age of prime time. It is my favorite episode of the week, the versus versus versus. Only we're one versus down this week because of overzealous writing and an uneven number of episodes. This is our shortest versus of the season with Dallas going up against Falcon Crest. I'm excited about this one. So whether you're new to this or true to this, sit back and enjoy. Tell the kids it's time to play outside or out of sight. Tell Bay no questions, suggestions, or concerns. Basically, tell them what else we're doing. We're talking about growing folks' business. So if you can't be cool, quiet, you need to get out. That's all there is to it because we have got to get to the bottom of Season 3, Episode 24, Who Did It Best? Because these are our stories. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, this is so cool. Welcome back, party people, to another fun build edition of Soap Lore. Versus Versus, favorite episode of the week, and we're only going to do the two today. We're doing Falcon Crest and Dallas. Now, I'm going to go ahead and let the cat out of the bag here. I don't think it's going to be a surprise to anyone who's been listening. That Dynasty is not going to win season three extraordinaire or whatever, the best and bubbliest. Not because they didn't put on a good show. Let me be very clear. Dynasty has been entertaining. It has been funny. I have enjoyed the cat fights. I've enjoyed watching Alexis develop into this. She's clearly the one to watch. Feels like there's a little back and forth this season between whether she or Crystal was supposed to be the star, but there's no question about it. Alexis Carrington Colby is the star of the show. The rest of the Carringtons have kind of fallen into the background, even with Steven coming back from the dead, essentially. It was not that interesting. Plot twist? Not really. Cliffhangers? Not yet. Easy to watch? Absolutely. Fully entertained from top to bottom? Absolutely. I've enjoyed it thoroughly so far. They still have one more episode to go. We will get to Dynasty's episode 24 on the finale. But so far, it's pretty clear to me that it'll be in a tertiary position. And who's to say how long that'll last? What We don't know what season... Well, I don't know what season four is going to bring. But you OGs definitely do. And clearly, this show was on top for the reason. So I'm looking forward to it. No shade. Dynasty has been very, very fun. But when you compare Dallas to Dynasty, to Falcon Crest. Dallas and Falcon Crest have the plot twist. They have unresolved issues. They have a lot of tension that is building up throughout the entire episode that we don't see on Dynasty. Not yet, at least. It's enough about that. Episode 24. Just to refresh your memory, this will be the last episode that airs before the finale for Dallas. Dallas has 25 episodes, where Falcon Crest has 28. So as soon as we're done with this one, we got to jump right in. We're going to have three in a row of Falcon Crest. If it's not your favorite show, if you're not watching it, I would highly, highly suggest it. If you're an OG who was just kind of reliving some of these moments and you've never seen Falcon Crest, you got to jump on. I know there's a lot of people here who listen to the show specifically for Falcon Crest. It seems to do better than a lot of the shows sometimes. And I see why. Not to be biased, because I'm going to be real. This week, it was a it was a show down. We have the Dallas Wheeler Dealer episode, which still feels funny in my mouth. I heard wheeling and dealing is what I want to say. But it's the Wheeler Dealer episode and Falcon Crest Loves Triumph episode. Also known as the, now, where did I put that tumor? episode. And Dallas is also known as 
the first Wives Identity Crisis Club episode, according to yours truly. Go ahead and grab you something. I don't think we'll be here too long. Let's get into it. Who did it best? Who had the best story for season three, episode 24? There's a few points I want to make about Falcon Crest specifically on episode 24. First and foremost, Julia. Now, even though she wasn't in the episode for very long, she hadn't been on the episode, any of the episodes very long, not since the beginning, right after her trial, right when, <laughs> right when she was, uh, you know, deciding for that she wants to be her own woman in her own prison away from her mother. Mother is persona non grata. She is enemy number one. I always felt, even though I thought the writing on the show has always been superb, I always felt like Julia's insanity seems to have come out of nowhere. And if you recall, within the first few episodes, she was pretending to be insane so that she could get a softer sentence. It was apparent once she went to jail that she, listen, she is not bred for this. She is a kept woman. She's a brilliant wine scientist. She does not do aggression. She does not do confrontation. She simply wrestles with grapes all day and murders people when no one's looking. But we didn't know that, you know. The point I'm trying to make is, She's not built for prison and she got beat up and down the prison hallways. They had to get her out of there. So she was pretending to be cuckoo and that was entertaining. But then as time went on, I started to forget that she might actually have a couple screws loose. Seems like the writers might have also. And they went back and they corrected themselves circa episode nine or 10. So when when we see Julia... She's still rocking this wig. She is in her, she's in her domestic housewife identity at the time. I'm still forgetting that she can become unhinged, but it's very clear that she's only becoming unhinged when she has to deal with or think about Angela. I like that they kept her hidden for so long. So now that she's coming back, it's almost as if I get to see a brand new person. The character is being presented in a way that shows that dark side because we never really explored that. In in the jail, it was difficult to It was difficult to see that because she was so afraid of being in jail. So it seemed like when she was lashing out, she was only lashing out because she, she was, she was afraid. Didn't click that it was because she really does hate her mom and that's who made her snapped. They don't really phone that. See, that's the thing. Julia's never been like in the forefront very much. So you don't get to, to learn about her like you do the other characters. Like you can kind of tell when Maggie's upset. You can definitely tell when Chase is upset, Richard, all those. You can tell, but when it's a bit character like Julia, I just never really know. But now we know she is fully focused. She's got a plan. She's afraid for her life, quote unquote. But I think she's heading up to Falcon Crest to off Angela. That's my thought. Seems to be the only plausible explanation or she's going to shoot me. She seems upset about Melissa. Melissa has really flip the coin this season. I don't know why everybody is so emotionally invested in her all of a sudden, but her giving away Joseph, AKA having Joseph taken away, depending on who you ask, has really just set off a chain of events that you already know is going to explode in the finale. So I'm excited to see that. I was excited to see Julia this episode and I'm wondering about her wild card boyfriend. He seems to be, he's clearly suspicious. He clearly caught her packing trail mix and day old bread so that she could track God knows where to shoot God knows who. And he still kind of dealt with it well. So I don't know if he's going to tell on her, but I don't think he will. He gives me a creepy vibe. Just me personally, his care. I, I think that's just the way his face looks, but he gives me the creeps. I don't know if he's a crook himself. That was kind of my thought. And listen, we have plenty of episodes to find out about that. My next point 
is all about Richie Rich, this racetrack, his relationship with Jacqueline, and his relationship with the aviator Adonis himself, Mr. Chase Giuberti. Say what you will. If I had a long lost brother, cousin, whatever he is to him, and our mother died, a rich, wealthy, ruthless woman, and she saw it fit in her last days being of sound mind and body to include in her will that we should split 50,000, 50 million, excuse me, 50 million dollars for getting along. Ma'am, Richard is better than me. I would have went to chase his job. I would have burst in that hospital. <laughs> you gonna give me my $25 million. You don't get to make moral decisions based on what my mother may or may not have done. That is so wrong. And the more I thought about it, I was thinking about it as I was washing dishes the other day. How dare you make that decision? That is an executive decision. And I thought Michael was supposed to be involved in all this somehow. I thought Jacqueline trusted him to be the, the voice of reason. But say what you will. Chase took advantage of a situation. He knows everybody's occupied worrying about Ma uh, Maggie. He read what was in that file and decided, you know what? My mom's a scumbag. You already knew your mom was a scumbag. We've known that since the beginning of episode two. I mean, season two. But no, 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 no. You donated the whole bag. I, Richard, get on a plane, fly over to France and get your money back or Germany or wherever. I thought that was a really messed up thing. And it just, it's one of those, it's one of the subtleties that I really enjoy about this show is that although Chase appears to be the good guy, if you look at his track record, you look at the way he handled his family, you look at the way he didn't handle his daughter, the way he, um, he, uh, he didn't. Angela's not right, not wrong. He did run away from the valley only to come back and expect to have full. It doesn't work that way. And he continues to make moves that serve him first and then the greater good after the fact. That was the whole thing. Remember last season, that was the whole issue between he and Maggie. She felt like he was, he was just fixated on finding who was trying to frame Cole, which is a noble endeavor, but he was bulldozing people in, in the process. He was a juggernaut when he gets a thought in his head. But now you have you've got you have risked Richard's livelihood, and he took it fairly well. Other than the, you know throwing papers across the room, I mean I guess what else can you do? Anyways, that's a tension, 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 tension is building up. So there's got to be a confrontation after that. Of course, now Miss Lynch was put in between a, hard, a rock and a hard place, and she decided this episode. You know what? Love wins. I'm going to say, Richard, you guys can kiss my leather clad ass. I am not going to sell this man up the river ever, ever again. And at the end of the episode, we see that she gets kidnapped and they blow up her car, which I felt like was unnecessary. But you know, Falcon Crest, where Dynasty likes to buy expensive clothing, Falcon Crest loves a good stunt. And you know what? They hadn't blown up anything in about 15 episodes. We were due. And it was well worth it. I, I kind of hope... It seems like Richard is hip to the fact that there's probably something in the, I keep one, it's a, I guess it's still a trophy. I keep wanting to call it the Stanley Cup. Let's just call it the reward or award. He knows there's something within there because he already asked his lawyer if he should, you know, basically worry about that. And the lawyer told him, we'll get it x-rayed, we'll figure it out. So he already knows that something is going to quite literally pop off. So I'm wondering, I don't know. 
I don't know, this whole cartel thing is a little bit unpredictable. And part of me is a little bit nervous that it's not going to be a great ending. I don't know if Miss Lynch will be on the second or the fourth season of the show. All right. Last but not least, Dr. Michael Cousins. The, the surgery was almost, I don't want to say it was painful, but it is one of the longest scenes I've ever seen on this show. And it just drug on and on. And it was super distracting because as I pointed out, she has a brain tumor, not a neck, chest, or abdomen tumor. So it was weird to see her in a stocking cap. And you know, she's she's one of those people, she actually looks looks like a little kid to me. If you ever babysit a kid or you have children of your own cousins, brothers, sisters, it doesn't really matter. When a child is pretending to be asleep, their eyes flutter really hard. The actress who plays Maggie, her eyes, she's not great at just laying there, keeping her eyes closed. She is a, she's a wonderful actress, but it was a little bit distracting and it went on and on. And Michael's newfound confidence coming out of nowhere was interesting. When Erica was on the show, she had this point and I've, I've started to kind of see the world of vintage soap operas through that. She has this theory that um, that's Erica Whittleby of Television of Yore. She has this theory that the writers back then, they didn't, obviously they can't see the future. They had no idea that there was going to be a point in the near future that people would rewatch what they've already produced. These were kind of one-off shows. It would air, think about that. They would air once, maybe again in the summer, but you you only saw the show one time. There was not a, there was not a way to rewatch it. Granted, by the eighties, people had VCRs. But listen, y'all remember back in the day, if you had a VCR, you had to make decisions. You had to make life altering, hard decisions about what you were going to watch and what you weren't going to watch. Are you going to record over your sister's wedding, the last episode of Nine Hundred Two One Zero or General Hospital? Yeah, a lot of people did. You had to record over certain things. So it's like even if you did buy some chance record the show it probably you're probably not going to watch it like the way we watch things now so her theory is that the writers could be a lot more loosey-goosey when they wrote things down because you never had to go back and fact check even if someone suspected they're watching like say season seven of dallas and all of a sudden sue ellen something changes sue ellen's mom suddenly she has like four brothers or something it's not like you could rewind or go back and verify that information, we would just have to take it at word, take it to someone's word for it. Anyway, Michael's confidence seems to be like that this week to me. Out of nowhere, he's brave, he's bold, he's brash. He's telling the other doctor to go take his McDonald's order, get out of my face. Very confident. And then when Maggie slips into the coma, it's almost as if he's just, he's calm, cool, and collected. You would think he'd have a little bit of a breakdown because this is exactly what he didn't want to happen. But perhaps to him, it's a win because she's not dead. She's just comatose. All's well as it ends well, though. She seems to wake up at the end. And I left out the chunk about Angela and Philip. Philip's audacity. The dude should have an octane level. The fact that he is just that. Okay, so let me set the scene. Angela goes to the chapel to pray after she asks Chase about the work. She goes to the chapel to pray for her play niece, Maggie, and walks Philip. And he's still under the impression that the way to win this woman's heart is to basically rob her of her birthright, become her number one competitor, poach workers from her vineyard. And all that is going to prove to her that he loves her and that every move he makes is for her. He's such a freaking fraud. That's not even true. 
Remember when he was playing both sides of the fence with, with Richie? He literally was playing both sides and he had two or three side chicks. So let's not stand on ceremony, Philip or Eric. What, what the hell is his name? Philip. I don't know what game he's playing with, but I, she better not fall for it. I don't like an emotional Angela. I decided that last night too. I don't like her with all these feelings and all this ooey gooey, drippy, lovey dovey crap. I need her to toughen up. She needs to go out and pistol whip somebody or something. She can get her cojones back. Either way, excellent episode this week. Was it better than Dallas? Nah. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But I've been waiting for a very long time for the for. Oh God, I'm going to mess up her name. I swear I don't do that on purpose. I'm going to pause and look up her name. It's the least I can do. Melissa. Melissa, Melissa, Melissa. Like bad girl Melly Mel. From Falcon Crest. Can't figure out why that's so hard for me to remember. I guess because I I keep thinking Amanda and it was something with an M. I was also on Ancestry.com and going through my relatives. I love genealogy, by the way. Genealogy, history, all that is so much fun to me. So it's no surprise that I do a bunch of soap opera show. One of my relatives was named Amanda. I found that very strange because to me, Amanda sounds like one of those quintessential Gen X or millennial names. You know, Amanda, Nicole, Jessica, think about this. You're millennial millennial or a Gen X. How many Lindsay's, Jessica's, Brittany's, Nicole, Amanda, Nicole and Amanda are like hardcore Gen X names. You you get what I'm saying? Like you just hear like Gertrude, Mildred, all that. I don't know any Gertrudes. I might know Mildred. She's definitely not 35. I don't know. Melissa seems like an odd name for the 30s, but who am I? I don't know. I don't know the history of the name. So Melissa, I have been waiting on her for a very long time. Ever since they mentioned that Jock had a wife. What was that? Episode four of the season? Three or four? When the guys go to Louisiana and then they're quickly accosted by some um, backwoods vigilantes for, I can't even remember what the problem was. Jock had pissed off somebody. Jock has pissed off people left and right all season three. This really is his season. But Melissa, I was waiting for her to show up. I actually thought she would show up at the ranch. I didn't expect them to fly out to see her. And I didn't expect her to be so fragile. Precious, adorable old lady, fully still in love with Jock, although she didn't recognize him as an old man. She ignored him because she's like, baby, I'm 25 in my mind. I refuse to. Mm-mm. If you're a senior citizen, I'm a senior citizen. So I'm going to act like I don't know who you are. Cute enough scene. Really ready for Pam to get down to Corpus and figure out what's going on with her mom, figure out whatever that backstory is. Maybe she really is Digger's daughter. Who knows? But I left out the big juicy chunks. We didn't talk about JR at all. Love, I don't even hate him. I just love him. But it is, it's satisfying to know that there's going to be repercussions for his actions because he's so unapologetically slimy and it makes for wonderful TV. So this episode is where he figures out he has a guy in South Asia, unspecified location, who comes to him early in the episode to let him know that, hey, something, there's like rebels, there's about to be a whole revolution. It's going to get really ugly. You're about to lose a lot of money. So JR tries everything he can. He tries to bribe some of the rebels. He tries to, you know, soften the government. Basically, he's trying to save his butt because this oil deal is massive. Everybody wants a piece of it. And so he uses his lack of moral compass 
to finesse a deal. He calls up all the guys who didn't want to jump in in bed with him with the oil deal originally. And he tells them basically, here's this opportunity. And they take it hook, line and thinker because they know how much money he's already made. And unbeknownst to them, it's all about to go down the drain. So he convinces them all to, you know, buy a stake in the company. And I had it written down. I'm not looking at it now, but it was something to the tune of, um, Ewing Oil was going to sell like 75% of their stock. You could buy it, but then you had to give the Ewings a quarter of your revenue in perpetuity forever and ever and ever. Amen. Well, he gets this done just in the nick of time because by the end of the episode, there is a new story that breaks about uh, the, you know, things going down in the South, in South Asia. Jock loses his mind. He's like, how much did I lose? And I don't know why he's so gravelly voiced. I've got to go back. I think his name's Jim Davis. I gotta go back and watch some of his films from back in the day. I'm wondering what's going on with that. But he seems super gravelly. He's all loud. And JR expresses to him like, no dad, I didn't lose any money. We just made a fortune. And he's just like cheesing and all slimy and happy about it. It only adds to the tension because we know he's about to get is going to get shot in the next episode. That part doesn't really matter. I'm like, even if that wasn't going to be the case, he is fun to watch. Every scene he's in, he steals it. My eyes are on him the whole time. I'm laughing even when it's serious. He just has a way of pulling out the best. And it's just like, God, he's so icky and I would love to hate him, but I just can't just love him. Also, this episode is where Bad girl Kristen decided she has had enough. Now she has been barking up the wrong tree all season long. And she's just now, just now coming to terms with the fact that, hmm, if this man does this to my sister, what makes me think he's going to do anything different to me? He went to see his hooker who was busy because she was on the clock and she couldn't service him. So he goes to Kristen, essentially equating her on the same level as a hooker. Now, no disrespect, but that sucks if you're supposed to be the woman you th- who's going to marry him. She just doesn't get it. But this episode, she's like, you know what? I've had about enough. She had Alan. First off, how many numbers, just out of curiosity, like you're talking back to me, how many numbers do you have memorized? Phone numbers. She remembers Alan's number off the top of her head, which... <laughs> I really, I'm watching this and I know I'm focusing on the wrong thing, but I was like, man, that's impressive. I don't think I could name off if I had to like give you names and I can give you names of people, but their phone number, 90% of them, I have no clue. I have no clue. But like, if it's like an old restaurant or something, I could probably remember that. Either way, Kristen remembers what she needs to. And she calls up Alan Beam, which is pretty impressive because I've named him a demi-villain all season long. He didn't have anything to lose, and he's just as smart and just as ruthless as JR. He's probably smarter than JR and just as ruthless. So they are cooking up some sort of scheme. They're going to make him look bad. She decides she's going to take JR's advice. She's going to spend quality time with all of his icky, gross, sleazy oil men and just, just get some intel, figure out what's going on. So by the end of the episode, Kristen has fully converted, or it's, or so it appears. She is fully converted to the anti-JR club. And it's going to be fun to see how that all plays out. So with that being said, 
Comparing apples to apples, good writing to good writing, big villains to big villains. Oof. I'm going to have to give this week to Dallas. I know, I know, I know, I know. I have to give it to Dallas this week because of the setup and of the reveal. We still don't know. They, they opened a whole nother thought process here. Is Pam's mother alive? Possibly. Oh, also the cliff thing. The whole Ewing oil number 27 or number seven or whatever number it is. Suddenly Pam and Cliff are due back some revenue. Now, okay, just to refresh your memory. Digger Barnes made one good deal his whole life and he did it in a drunken stupor and he stuffed the paperwork away in a trunk in his sister's attic. He and Jock have this this contract, quote unquote, signed on a napkin or on this piece of paper stating that the they were going to split whatever comes out of this particular oil well forever, 50-50. Now, Cliff being a lawyer, he immediately gets to the library. He starts looking up and he determines that they're going to make about half a million dollars a year. He and Pam own that rightfully. Now, it just so happens that Bobby opened it up recently. Either way it goes, there's... The, the 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 angle that we're taking now is that the Ewings and the Barnes are in business. Pam's mother may or may not be alive. JR has now pissed off dozens of people at this point. And bad girl Kristen has all his information in the palm of her hand. She can do whatever she wants with that. For that reason alone, for those reasons, and bringing Melissa into the picture, I have to give it to Dallas this week. Well, that was fun. Join me next time as we shuffle through the rest of Falcon Crest. Three in a row. I don't see any point in stretching that out. So it'll be three days in a row. Three podcasts about Falcon Crest. So we can come to the final conclusion about the finales. In the meantime, in between time, take care of yourself. You deserve it. Stay hydrated. Stay moisturized. Stay warm. Mind your business and keep all of your drama on TV. Bye.